Now the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. Well, my name is Greg Knapp. I'm in for Greg Columbus. I'm a speaker, author, coach, talk show host. You can find out more about me and links to my social media at GregoryBnapp.com. That's K-N-A-P-P as in Peter and Peter. And I'm joined by Jim Garrity, senior political correspondent of National Review, and his Twitter handle, at Jim Garrity. You can follow him there. This is the Three Martini Lunch. Other Greg, thank you for joining me. <laughs> yes, sir. I love to be known as the other Greg. Uh, let's start with a good martini. That's the way to start the day. Uh, there's an article in Politico about the Reagan supply siders, that they are not gone away, blazing a comeback under Trump, and the Reagan gang back in setting economic policy in the Trump White House. So what does that really mean for the rest of his first term, Jim? Yeah. So first of all, it's a fascinating article. One of those things that's, you know, you look at it and you realize this has kind of been staring you at the face since the beginning. Uh, but it's kind of take a good article to put it all together. You can almost picture, uh, you know, Larry Kudlow and Stephen Moore uh, in dark sunglasses knocking at the door uh, like the Blues Brothers saying, hey, we're getting the band back together. Right. Um, and it is, you know, it's, it's not just uh, Moore and Kudlow, but it's also Art Laffer. Uh, Steve Forbes apparently has the uh, the president's ear quite a bit. Um the, uh, you know, David Malpass, you know, they're, they're all kind of folks who had, you know, kind of cut their teeth in the Reagan administration, the supply side tax and regulation fights that were there. And he's not mentioned in the article, but I also throw in there uh, Kevin Hassett, uh, formerly of American Enterprise Institute, now chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And you put all those guys together. And it's kind of interesting that for all the ways that Trump was, particularly on the campaign trail in 2015 and 2016, not a traditional conservative um, in the past, you know, a, a couple of the social issues, but also uh, he made the argument that he felt like hedge fund managers were getting undertaxed. Uh, there was this whole populist undercurrent of, you know, these uh, rich fat cats are screwing you over. And that's why uh, your, your life isn't the way it ought to be. Uh, obviously the trade and economic populism um, this was, you know, there was some evidence this was going to be not a traditionally economically conservative presidency. And now you look at this, and this is kind of the all-star team that every economic conservative would have wanted to see. Now, are they winning every argument? No, you still see the uh, the trade uh, tariffs and, and things like that in place. But um, if you had wanted the readership of National Review or a whole bunch of other folks to say, what kind of economic advisors would you want to see around the table when Trump is trying to formulate his policies? This is pretty much the gang. Uh, and the other thing that's fascinating is that these were the these were young men in the Reagan administration. A lot of time has gone by since then, but by and large, that is the uh, that and you could throw in Steve Moore. Um, that this is you know uh, a whole bunch of the folks who were big influential thinkers on taxes and regulation and other economic policy back in the 1980s are there. And uh, you know there are a lot of things I like about the 80s, and the economic policies are high up there. Yeah, what I find interesting, Jim, I was reading the article and. They said, you know, some call these people charlatans, others, uh, you know, like soothsayers or something. I'm like, well, wait a second, charlatans? Hold on. This is the rewriting of history is what drives me crazy. I mean, if you look at supply side and tax cuts and regulations under Coolidge, JFK on the Democratic side, Reagan, W, now Trump, every single time that you use the supply side economics, you cut uh, t tax rates across the board, and you also cut regulations. You had an increase in tax revenues. Now I know that 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 uh, that people will say, "Well, 
but sometimes, you know, it takes a while for that to kick in. Well, yeah, of course it takes a while to kick in. You got to get the economy running, but you, you had it work every single time. Even under George W. Bush, the tax cuts did lead to higher tax revenues. It's always the spending that leads to the deficits. And yet we still have people acting like this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I'm going to kind of notice, first of all, I love in this article, all the different nicknames that come up for them. Um, <laughs> Avik Roy calls them the four musketeers of the supply side movement. Uh, Moore calls them the supply side beetles. The four amigos is what Grover Norquist called them. Uh, and Jack Fowler, who's currently vice president here at National Review, calls the fourness of them. Uh, somebody else calls them the, the kind of the, the supply side rat pack. So first of all, I want them all to pose in dark suits and sunglasses. Uh, they need an album cover of some kind for these four. Yeah. Uh, a little more seriously, we've seen we've seen both in this presidency and a couple other uh, past presidencies this concept of Abraham Lincoln's team of rivals. Right, you get a whole bunch of people who disagree strongly around the table, and ideally, no viewpoint is obscured or suppressed, and from that you get the best policy. Sometimes that works. Sometimes you get, as that book title of earlier this year was, you get a team of vipers. You get a bunch of people who all can't stand each other, completely vehemently disagree with each other, and are constantly trying to undermine each other and stab each other in the back. And your presidential cabinet ends up looking like Game of Thrones. So I, I kind of like having four guys who, uh, or, or you know, in some cases, a, a network of guys who all know each other, who all like each other, who are all are in agreement in the issues, who all share the same goals. Um, and have worked together for a long time, both uh, both formally and informally. I think actually this is probably going to have uh, better results than the you know team of rivals uh, philosophy of that. So yeah. we'll see how things shake out. Um, but again, it's kind of an interesting remark. It is a bit of a Reagan revival. And if you're wondering, when people ask, oh, how can Republicans stand by this president when he tweets such outrageous things? Well, policy-wise, yeah, personnel-wise, this is a lot of the people you'd want to see, uh, at least particularly in the economic sphere. Yeah, that's what I hear all the time from people that listen to talk radio that call in. They like the policies. They, they, they may have problems like many people do with a lot of the other problems of Trump. But when you look at the judges, the regulations, the taxes, you know, those kind of things, they say, hey, it's a lot better than if we'd had Hillary. And they have a point. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that. All right, let's move on to the bad martini. Easter bombings, Sri Lanka. Holy cow, what a horrible thing to wake up to when you're celebrating the resurrection of Christ and uh, dying for our sins if you're Christian. And the Christians in Sri Lanka targeted, and the tourists in Sri Lanka targeted Sri Lankan government, saying they believe it's a radical Muslim group. Extremely well-coordinated uh, bombing attacks. What do you say? What do you say, Jim? Yeah. So, uh, Greg, I had, you know, for, for another project, done a lot of research into the history of terrorism. And it's really kind of interesting. One of the few times you can point to a terrorist group that was pretty much completely eradicated. There was this group that fought for about 25 years, uh, a kind of a radical socialist separatist group, um, very militant, called the Tamil Tigers uh, out in Sri Lanka. And basically, mm-hmm. they wanted to kind of create an independent homeland. Sri Lanka is this island that's off the coast of India. Um, and just, you know, all, all the classics of terrorism. Uh, our, people said they were some of the best suicide bombers in the world. I, I didn't know there were official standings for that, Greg, but apparently they were very good at it. Yeah, because um, you can a real really menace. Do it, right? the, the Sri Lankan government had a, a, a heck of a fight. They would periodically have ceasefire agreements. Um, the ceasefires would break down. The violence would start up again. Um, and then around, I want to say 2009 or so, the Sri Lankan government really got its act together and both, you know, trying to, they had tried to do, you know, either, either crackdowns 
or economic development. And for the first time, they had the resources to say, let's try both. Let's try to do economic development to get people to not feel so radicalized, so angry at the, at the status quo and eager to join a terrorist group. And let's do the crackdowns we need to hunt these guys down and take them out. Of, uh, take them out. And they did it. And the last guys got caught in 2009. And the Tamil Tigers, as they existed, stopped. They, there just was no further leadership. They basically, it was, you know, exactly the goal we want to see with Al-Qaeda, exactly the goal we want to see with ISIS. You know, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's tougher with Islamists, but it does kind of say to you, a, a well-funded, determined government that, you know, that has the resources it needs and, and the policies, right policies in place can defeat a terrorist group. Um, we're not destined to live with this sort of thing for the rest of our lives. Uh, it was one of the great inspiring ones. And as I noticed, that was Tamil Tigers were not an Islamist group. They were kind of kind of this radical socialist separatist uh, uh, movement. Um, this is really disturbing what happened on Easter, not just because of the, the lives lost, but also because this is, this is the hallmarks of Al-Qaeda, you know, multiple attacks, simultaneous. Um, this is really, you know, you, you hate, hate to give these guys any degree of credit, but this was well-planned and well-executed. And it's a recognition. We've actually seen, you know, with the, the end of the Islamic State, things looked like they'd been getting a little bit better in the, category, in, in the, in the realm of Islamist terror attacks, particularly outside the Middle East. And here we are. Uh, now it appears that there is a threat. And if you are an Islamist terrorist, every church in the world is a potential soft target. And as you know, as much as we have an enormous and, and well-funded and well-trained, you know, counterterrorism effort, both from our military, our police, law enforcement, intelligence networks, all that kind of stuff, you can't protect every church in the world. Um, and so I think this is a really thorny problem for law enforcement and for, for government officials here, Sri Lanka, and really all around the world. I noticed that they apparently uh, a lot of cities decided to put more um, uh, security around uh, uh, houses of worship afterwards. And uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if the Islamists decide we're just going to hit any church we can, uh, our options for protecting all those churches around the world are pretty limited. Yeah, I know a lot of churches are already taking it upon themselves. My church has a security detail uh, in addition to police officers that we hire for every service because of how crazy it's gotten. And it's, it's going to get worse, unfortunately. You know, here's the other thing, Jim. When I when I saw how coordinated it was, my whole thing was, man, how do you coordinate it that well without anybody leaking or without anybody knowing? And already the telecommunications minister for Sri Lanka had tweeted this out. Some intelligence officers were aware of this incident, therefore there was a delay in action. Serious action needs to be taken as to why this warning was ignored. And he added that his father had heard of a possible attack and had warned him not to enter popular churches. So is it, is it another breakdown in communication between these intelligence agencies? Or, or is it just, you know, this is stuff that comes out with these attacks and we don't know what to believe yet anyway? Yeah, I mean, this may be selection bias. It may be the sort of thing that you're hearing these sorts of rumors all the time. You know, most Sundays you don't get a, you don't, you don't have an attack, and then after a while it begins to sound like the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I, I don't know how. As I say, Sri Lanka, about, circa 2009, had a very effective counterterrorism operation um, against a different type of terrorist. I don't know if they've deteriorated since then, or whether they just kind of got caught flat-footed in this particular set of circumstances. You, you do start wondering that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, we will start, I, I said, I think it's safe to say you'll see a lot of security around a lot of churches from here on then. But then the question is, do they target markets? Do they target, um, 
you know, any other gathering, sports events, you know, anything where you're going to have a crowd. I ultimately, when it comes to terrorism, you can't play defense. There are just too many targets and too many places that somebody with a suicide belt or something like that could kill a whole bunch of people. So the question then is the only way to do it is to start sending in people to infiltrate these groups um, and monitoring the internet and things like that. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, hopefully they can, uh, uh, get a handle on this because otherwise it could be very scary times in Sri Lanka and elsewhere. Absolutely. And, you know, on a slightly lighter note, you mentioned that they were supposed to be the best suicide bombers and best suicide bomber. That's a title you don't really get to enjoy, isn't it? Yeah. You don't see a lot of veteran ones either. Yeah. It doesn't last long for you. All right, let's get on to the crazy martini. And of course, we go to New York City and Mayor de Blasio making another appearance on the crazy martini because he now says, "Okay, maybe the new Green Deal isn't going anywhere in Congress right now, but it's going somewhere in New York City. And he said, quote, we are going to ban, ban the classic glass and steel skyscrapers, which are incredibly inefficient. Wow. Jim, (laughs) what's going on? I mean, I'm looking at that and saying thing like, I'm, you're you're a mayor of New York and you've decided that skyscrapers are the problem. <laughs> I, I guess he's in the right place. Uh, you, you might as well decide you want to ban hot dogs from those little vendors on the corner. Hey, those you have a lot you of ban the Yankees, you know, and the middle finger. Right? They're, those are the things that make New York New York. Um, I guess the idea is that traditional glass and steel skyscrapers are not energy efficient uh, the way de Blasio would like them to be. Um, I I can't, you know, as many people point out, what else do you want to build? It's not like you're building skyscrapers out of plastic. (laughs) You know, at some point you're going to need steel girders and and things like that. Can you make various uh, efforts to, to, you know, maximize the, uh, uh, you know, the, the energy efficiency of it? Sure. But, but all in all, this is a, you know, uh, pretty soon. The other thing which I love is oh, this is a key. He mentioned this in an interview in Morning Joe. He talks about this. This is part of his urban Green New Deal. By the way, as soon as as soon as a particular piece of legislation starts generating its own spin-off pieces of legislation, it's generally a sign that it's going nowhere. Right. You know, if, yep. We didn't hear a lot of, you know, junior Obamacare or Obamacare plus or things. none of the, you know, as soon as you, you know, either it passes as it is or as, as soon as you have multiple versions of it then the support starts splintering and breaking down. Um, and, and Greg, I don't know about you, I don't feel any need to see a Green New Deal uh, spin-off sequels and ultimately a vast cinematic universe of interchangeable, of in, inter- interacting pieces of legislation. No, it sounds like something that should be on the CW network, if anywhere. There you go. Uh, and, you know, and here's the thing, the people like Mayor de Blasio and the people like AOC, they don't believe in any kind of a cost-benefit analysis mm-hmm. because in their mind... The ultimate cost is climate change. We're responsible for all of it. And the world's going to end in 12 years unless we do everything they say. So it doesn't matter that this might greatly reduce the number of skyscrapers being built in New York City, which would greatly reduce the number of jobs in New York City, which would greatly reduce tax revenues in New York City and on and on and on. None of that matters because in their mind, they're Don Quixote uh, and tilting against the windmill of of these awful evil corporations that are destroying the planet with their energy use. Yeah. Right? Uh, also worth noting, this is an interview with uh, morning Joe uh, to their credit. They did ask the mayor, you know, when you go jogging, your security detail goes behind you in a car <laughs> <laughs> and that's not exactly the most, you know, uh, environmentally friendly policy. Are you going to stop doing that? And it, it, the answer, he kept insisting, well, because I'm, you know, 
He offered a variation of the same excuse Michael Bloomberg did when people would call him out on his, uh, his carbon emissions. Uh, a version of like, well, I'm proposing carbon neutral policies, so that offsets what I'm doing personally. Right. Like Beta O'Rourke's, I serve the public by being in elected office. That's my charity. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's but, another way of saying you have to live the way I tell you to, but I can live the way I want to because I'm rich enough to plant some trees. Yeah. And again, or I'm a, offsetting everything. So you, you guys, you, you can't use a dryer anymore. You have to ha- hang your clothes on the line, but I'll plant a couple trees and I can do what I want to do. And it, it's really insulting, but the left seems to let it go. It's okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of insufferable. One of the more trans- the other thing also is that it's very intriguing that uh, that uh, the the infamous groundhog killer uh, De Blasio has not announced that he's running for president. They asked him about this. He said he's gonna. It's gonna the, the decision is coming soon. Look, you only introduce this sort of thing if you want to run for president. Now, I believe we're up to ninety four million uh, Democratic presidential candidates so far. But you know what? Come on, go right ahead. Uh, uh, you know, if you want to run to Blasio, run. Don't pretend. You stop the, all this pretending. Um, you're, the, when you're introducing your own spin on uh, legislation that's been introduced in Congress, first of all, you should run for Congress. You, if you want that job, fine. Go for that job. Um, but it's, it's pretty clear de Blasio is flailing around. He desperately wants to be president of the United States, but hasn't quite figured out how to make it work for him. Um, groundhog killing is apparently not enough. So now he will try to do away with skyscrapers, you know. So uh, and here's the here's the other part in that piece this morning that he was talking about. He said in the next five years, in the next five years, New York's government will get all of its energy from renewable resources. Now, does he just mean like the New York City office? Is he trying to say the whole island of Manhattan? I, I'm a little confused on what he means by that because. There's no way on God's green earth they're getting all renewable energy in the next five years for that city. No, must- no. My, my guess is it's the city, and I don't know how much uh, how many. We have to, somebody, somebody will follow up on that. My guess is they will not make that deadline. No the playbook for any politician in this situation is make a bold promise, and uh, uh, hopefully, five years down the road, no one will remember. Well, hey, nobody remembers Al Gore 20 years ago telling us we had 10 years left. So you you can just keep saying it over and over again. And as long as you keep making a crazy enough claim, people will love it, I guess. All right. That was the crazy martini. Jim Garrity, National Review. My name is Greg Knapp, gregorybnapp.com. This was the three martini lunch.